Well, hello, Date Nighters, our Mission Bible fam, and the FTG audience around the world. It is October. Time for chili and cornbread. <laughs> How do we do cornbread on paleo this year, my love? Sprouts actually just came out with one last year. It's so good. Oh, anything for your cornbread. <laughs> That's something people don't know about you. You're uber seasonal, like decorations for fall go up in August. <laughs> January 2nd is already spring colors. Boom, boom, chop, chop. Totally. Life's short. My mama has always done this since I've been little and I have loved it. You know, some people leave things up for a while, like Christmas lights an extra week or some people a month or... Where are you going with this? Oh, I don't know. Is that an eye twitch I see? (laughs) I could relax a tiny (laughs) bit and enjoy the moment. And the cornbread. Okay. This should be a fun one. A bit of a touchy subject. We are going to be responding to Jesus Feminist, which was a book by Sarah Bessie. Um, It's actually a little older now, maybe nine, ten years Um, And there's a whole cohort of these gals, Rachel Held Evans, Jen Hatmaker, uh, and all the liberal professors from Fuller Seminary that they learned from. And we'll spend a couple weeks on this next week discussing the beauties of homemaking and why being a stay-at-home mom, S-H-A, S-H-A. is a beautiful vocation. And we understand there are Christian wives who need to help make ends meet financially and single mothers who have no choice but to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you bet we'll talk about those challenges another time and certainly don't want any of you feeling discouraged while you fight the good fight. Yes, but we do want to confront the spirit of our age and the contention by in quote evangelical women that husbands and wives should have the same roles both in the home and in the church it'll be fun you ready yes ethan ready let's roll how dare you say that to me what did i say i don't know but how Okay, so here's the background on this. I have a friend who leads a young adult ministry, and they had a solid young couple at the church, married with a couple of kids, and they were figuring out how to work as a team and role clarity. Well, she gets a hold of this book, the book that we're talking about today, and their little marriage just flips upside down. Uh, She turns on the idea of respecting his leadership, developing the kids. She charges out to build her career, the whole nine yards. So heartbreaking. And then I got a note also about a church. Uh, where they get on this bandwagon and a woman rises up, splits the church, takes half the elders with her so that she can lead. Wow. And that's kind of common right now. I mean, even over here around the corner, there's a little church meeting in a coffee shop. And I, I saw the sign and I pulled up the website and there's a lady on there called, quote, the lead pastor of healthy communities. And it's kind of like they have a plurality of elders, but it's all the husbands and the wives. And it's like this admixture of biblical ecclesiology and new age terms. And it's just so far from scripture or church history. Let me ask the question up front then. Why is that so different from historic Christian moorings? Mm. You know, what's the starting place on all of this? Well, that's part of, I think, what we need to evaluate evaluate in this Jesus feminist book um, today. So we're not just building a straw man, but interacting with her actual published position. But I would reiterate something that Owen talked about last week, that a biblical view of Christian male-female roles is what's often termed complementarian, just a modern word for equal in essence or value, but distinct in role or function. Uh, And the Bible incontrovertibly anchors that in eternal design, like the Trinity, God's creation of Adam and Eve. So it's not an, in quote, modern idea or cultural issue, but something that's meant to be part of the image of God, hardwired into his creation. But as you know, the fall twisted all that, and that's why we're having this discussion today. So how should we discuss this? Well, let's use Sarah's book as a map and point out what she's saying in each of these chapters and then kind of talk about whether we agree or disagree. Uh, And I want to say up front, Sarah seems like a genuinely kind person and she does a great job of interweaving her story. She's obviously a great writer, um, but likewise, there are a ton, a ton of theological issues here. Sounds good. So the introduction, let's start there, of this book is super creative, and it's, I would call it basic sentimentality, kind of wanting readers to lay down their swords and and set down their guard, 
um, and really like her and listen in. In fact, you can read the first paragraph so people get a taste. She says, here, let's do this. Let's try to lay down our ideas, our neatly organized Bible verses, our carefully crafted arguments. Let's take a break from sitting across from each other in this stuffy room. Let's head outside. I want us to sit around a fire pit ringed with stones and watch the moon move over the Pacific. I want us to drink good red wine, dig our toes into the cool sand and wrap up in cozy sweaters. <laughs> I mean, I want that too. I'm not a gal, but who doesn't want that? Totally. Right? You got to ring, you get, you almost like you want to read it. Like I want to, I want to cozy up with good red wine, <laughs> dig my toes into the cozy sand. So she quickly makes a turn uh, right there, positioning all that sentimental fire pit stuff against traditional truth. And, and I, I think it's amazing how she does that. She draws you in like, yeah, I want to be with her by the fire pit. And then she says, quote, because the vicious arguments, the limits, the you're in, but they're out, the debates and the silencing aren't working, are they? This is a theology of war. She's immediately drawing sides. Yeah. And then she uses victimology there in the introduction to create empathy from the reader. You know, she says, you come bearing your wounds and don't we all, and someone has explained away your gifts and your wisdom and your marriage and your stories, your testimony and clobbered you with words and proof text. They've stifled you, bound you, cornered you. She even says abused you. So that's one page in, almost begging someone's pride and flesh and pain to agree with her, which we all have those things. And then she turns and says something really interesting I have highlighted. She says, quote, let's be done lobbying for a seat at the table, capital. You know, the fabled table we all want to seat at. And then she talks about the councils and the coalitions that have attempted to define biblical roles. And by the way, what she's referring to is like the council of biblical manhood or womanhood that, you know, Owen or Grant or any of those guys was a part of. Yeah. So that screams rebel. <laughs> it does. And then she anchors it in a false dichotomy about Jesus. And I think this is a fascinating line. She says, all too often, we're quick to choose a new shepherd instead of the rabbi from Nazareth. Meaning, you know, we look to our pastors instead of Jesus, mm. but that's a false break because Jesus built the church. The church is his. He's the great shepherd who gave the world his under shepherds. Not that they're perfect, but they are his heralds and ambassadors. And that's just the introduction. Yes. And then she goes on to urge kind of this lone ranger mentality where the real Christian ladies break free and there's artistic language and misfits and rebels and dancers and all that stuff. So is that dangerous, you know, being artistic? No. Well, only if it's disconnected from mental truth process. Mm-hmm. And that's the issue I would say that kind of the big yellow flag, if not red flag with Sarah, is she writes with such flourish about esoteric experiences, but then ignores the truth of God's word. And that's the fascinating thing that you'll see a lot from evangelicals trying to, in quote, deconstruct or break free is that they talk a lot about living like Jesus while avoiding or reinterpreting the very scriptures that he gave. Okay. So I will move us over to chapter one, which she titles, Jesus made a feminist okay. out of me. And it seems more of like a shock jock title to get attention than anything. Cause she's immediately acknowledging the three historic types of feminism. And isn't saying she's a third waiver like Betty Fried and Gloria Steinman Mm -hmm. who just want to murder babies and take over the world. Yeah. And to her credit, she does a really good job in that first chapter to establish, working to establish credibility. Often in debate, you'll hear that called common ground. She fairly defines feminism versus patriarchy. And then she fairly defines egalitarian versus complementarian. But it's right there that she maneuvers out of the historic discussion and says, let's agree both sides are probably wrong. I'm probably wrong. You're probably wrong. And then she jumps back to the Jesus dichotomy. You know, what I've learned is Jesus loves me. He loves us on our (laughs) own terms. He treats us as equals to the men around him. He listens. He does not belittle. He includes us. So suddenly a conversation in historic roles becomes a discussion on our value. Yep. You nailed it. The core flaw of the book, um, 
is right there. It peeks out in every chapter. She continually makes the discussion about value and not about role. And then eventually conflates the two. But that's not the issue on the table for discussion. And she just acknowledged that by defining the terms. So right from the beginning, you see the logical or even theological fallacy. And we need to remember this is always an issue when men and women come along who want to, and quote, reinvent the wheel. They have to also reinvent biblical interpretation. And instead of looking at the authorial intent and the literal historical grammatical meaning of a text that's been there 2,000 years, they make these leaps in logic. So if someone doesn't understand the terms, just to clarify, the Bible's clear about a man and woman being equal in value. Mm -hmm. Nobody disagrees on that. But the Bible is equally clear that God created male and female with unique functions. Mm -hmm. And that's the discussion Sarah sets up, you know, in this chapter and then moved away from by reverting back to Jesus loves me and I have value. Just back to Jesus loves me. And I'm going to move on right there to chapter three, which she titles her redemptive movement. And the reason she bobs and weaves out of the historic discussion of roles in chapter one and two is that she wants to platform this idea, something that she titles the redemptive movement. And she goes back to the in quote fire pit where the gals are saying, you know, with her. And she says, my purpose in bringing you here tonight is actually a step out of those debates to pursue what she calls a third way. It sounds like Tim Keller. It is. And she openly acknowledges ignoring the actual discussion. She just says, God has a global dream for his daughter and sons, bigger than narrow interpretation or small box constructs of biblical manhood and womanhood. It's bigger than our frozen in time arguments or cultural biases and socioeconomics. Now that sounds Bill Johnson-ish. <laughs> yes, it is. Bingo. And you'll see that in a second. A ton of of this is anchored in hypercharismatic stuff. Don't keep God in a box. Yes, we have the Bible, but God told me, you know, these are real miracles. But the bedrock of it is something that you will at times hear called a trajectory hermeneutic. And this is something common in liberal theology and social justice movements. The idea is that God spoke, yes, but we interpret the Bible by topic. And we as a community get a feel for how he plans to move the earth toward redemption. And often there are voices or prophets who help us see this new wave of God. So what Sarah believes is that the roles Jesus spoke of or Paul spoke of were fine for the first century, but based on trajectory should still be developing today. Hmm. And at risk of being a broken record here, I'll say it again. The way people end up with wild ideas always comes back to reinterpreting the Bible in wild ways. And it ends up inconsistent. So if Sarah decides the trajectory of God is man and a woman both staying home with a child, well, who's to stop the next person from writing a book that says the trajectory of God is now the child raising the parents? If we don't interpret the Bible consistently, we're always going to end up in in left field. I hope that makes sense. Yes. And that's why she's so big on social justice. And even there in chapter two, spends time talking about Christine Kane, slavery, human trafficking, because she's projecting where God's purposes ultimately rest. Yep. Not that helping hurt people is bad. It is not. I'll qualify Mm -hmm. that. But what she's trying to establish in chapter one is complementarians are legalist. And then in chapter two and three is, is I have the new answer moving forward. Yes. And then in chapter three, speaking as a woman, it's very heartfelt to the point it's hard to not sympathize. And I can honestly see why ladies would be so taken by this kind of writing. Absolutely. It's a good title too, Tangled Roots. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, the entire chapter is testimony. And then it moves from her story to identification with like the misfit, you know, the broken woman um, and other ladies who feel like she does. And the point is, her big point is people can argue with her theology, but not with her experience. Yes. She says, I had a church of female pastors and they spoke a word to me in need. They led key ministries. They didn't believe the gifts were sex-based. And I watched my mom and dad be equal and my husband and I get along and on and on it goes. Yep. And right there, she makes the turn like a rattler that strikes. She says, quote, so I was baffled. Since when did the stepping up of a real man require the bowing down or the lessening of the woman he loves? I mean, that terminology Uh. is... 
That, that's vitriol. Mm-hmm. And again, it moves from roles that she'd seen right back to value, but does so with language almost of tyranny. And I want to point out that again, that's the deadliness or even deceitfulness of her thesis. Time and again, she's conflating the role and the value, the function and the essence, which is just mishandling scripture and avoiding the, the key discussion. And finally, she gets to scripture. And in chapter four, titled The Silent Woman of Paul, she interacts with a couple of verses. Two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I want to be kind, but I need to be honest. She highlights two passages of the New Testament, four verses total, and she basically ignores one of them. Yeah, she puts forth 1 Corinthians 14, verses 34 through 35, and also 1 Timothy 2, verses 11 through 12 for examination, and then quotes scholars to suggest that even experts you know, have a hard time with these passages. And they're liberal scholars, mm-hmm. but here's my big concern. She does an okay job interacting with 1 Corinthians 14, but doesn't deal with 1 Timothy 2 at all. And for a woman suggesting the church has it wrong on the woman issue and the roles issue and the women's ministry issue, this is the first text, including Ephesians 5 also, that she has to work out. Why do you think she avoids it? Because it's too clear. And if anyone's forgetting the passage we're alluding to, it's where Paul says, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. So, mm-hmm. so Sarah actually, all she says is just a couple sentences. She says, quote, when Paul referenced Adam was created first, he wasn't assigning superiority to Adam based on birth order. No, he's pointing out Adam was there first. So he had something to teach Eve. She needed to learn. She wasn't inferior. She was ignorant, lacking in knowledge, end quote. And then that's all she says on it. A book titled Jesus Feminist, and she ignores the, the key passage. And she conflated value as role. Again, nobody ever interprets Paul to mean Eve was inferior and Adam superior, but that Paul was talking, you know, roles and functions in the church and using the created order as the reasoning. Boom. So she not only ignores the text, she sidesteps the principle like a boxer bobbing and weaving. And here's broken record Tony again. The only way to invent new movements is to invent new interpretations. Amen. Let's finish with the key chapter here because she sets all of her cards on the table in chapter five, which she titles, this is another great title, Dancing Warriors. Mm. And the rest of the book is just her ideology. You know, God told me this, the women's ministry and churches stink and social justice is the future and all that stuff. And in this chapter, she shares her story so well that it's hard not to link them. True. But amidst the niceties of it all, the rattler kind of strikes again. And I need everyone to listen closely here. Most of our listeners know, I, I, I know you date nighters around the world. I hope you know, Paul is clear in Ephesians five that a wife must submit or respect her husband's leadership and that he must protect and provide for his wife. Hence, those are super clear roles. Well, Sarah, again, via her trajectory hermeneutics, says Paul only wrote that due to the Greco-Roman context and the, end quote, heavy chain of patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And because these systems were built into first century house codes, and here's a precise quote, the apostles advocated this system not because God had revealed it as the divine will for Christian homes, but because it was the only stable and respectable system anyone knew about at that time, end quote. And then she jumps back again to the Jesus stuff, saying he's the better guide for our understanding. Oh, it's so sad. And then she goes on, this is really key, to reinterpret Eve made as Adam's helper, the Ezra Konegdo, not as a helpmeet or a helper suitable, but she coins it as a warrior. 
And then adds all this esoteric language, so it's this dancing warrior picture. And the thing that gets me right there is she reverts to that assault on complementarians as based on value, mm-hmm. writing, if a woman is held back, minimized, pushed down, or downplayed, she's not walking in the fullness God intended for her as his image bearer, his dancing warrior. If we minimize our gifts, hush our voice, and stay small in a misguided attempt to fit a weak and culturally conditioned standard of femininity, we cannot give our brothers the partner they require in God's mission for the world. Notice she calls it a culturally conditioned standard instead of a biblically mandated one. And let me just go ahead and answer her bad exegetical work real quick. Paul explains why a husband leads his wife and a wife follows her husband. And it has nothing to do with first century house codes. He literally says, quote, as Christ did for his church. (laughs) There it is. Each marriage is a metaphor of Christ in his church, a church who follows and a savior who protects. And that's lost on Sarah. Theology is lost on Sarah and everyone else who buys into all this feminist stuff. And let me just apply that real quickly for everyone listening. If you're listening and you buy into this madness and you lay down biblical roles and you try to run a little democracy, you're going to spiral. You'll have no rudder, no direction, no order, and, and inevitably no joy. And eventually it'll implode and the kids will reap the consequences. God didn't give roles to hurt us, but to bless us, not as unkind limits, but as a heavenly love. Amen. And can I add for all the ladies listening, no husband's perfect. Mm-hmm. Tony doesn't lead us perfectly, mm-hmm. but that doesn't <laughs> what? That doesn't change how we follow You know, God's words Amen. to say as unto the Lord. And even when it's hard, or even when you know you can do something maybe better, remember that your obedience to the Lord is played out in your respect for your husband. Well, we hope that that is somewhat helpful. We know it is a lot of content in a very short time, but whenever you hear a new iteration of feminism that's trying to steal your joy, it really is a devilish assault on the heavenly home, no matter how cloaked in scriptures it may pretend to be. Yes, and next week we will move from negative to positive and talk about the Christian Homemaker's Guide and all the rich blessings that come from being a stay-at-home mom. S-H-A! <laughs> You're so silly. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, we know that this is a tough one for many. Growing up in a culture like this with churches that capitulate. And we pray you'd give us all strength to study the word, to obey the word, and to usher the word into coming generations. So our homes would be your homes and your blessings would be our blessings. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Date Night fam, we will be back in a week. If you'd like to support the pod, leave a review or visit forthegospel.org to leave a donation. A special thanks to Ethan, our producer, our family at Mission Bible, and all of you. Until next week, keep living for the gospel and fighting for the family.